Hey everybody, how's it going? This is Hub, and welcome back to another episode of Tighten Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. As I believe I just mentioned, my name's Hub, and I hope you're having a fine whenever the heck it is you end up listening to this. Me? Oh, I'm doing okay. I'm a little bit concerned lately about my viewing habits. I've been watching kind of a lot of garbage lately on various streaming platforms. I was just kind of blaming that on the pandemic and having a little bit less emotional bandwidth due to all of the, you know, everything that's been going on. And I think that's certainly part of it, but if I'm honest, really ever since my primary means of viewing media was through streaming platforms, it's been headed that direction. See, I'm pretty sure that the reason I ever watched anything that wasn't trash is the same reason that when I order Chinese food takeout and they ask how many sets of chopsticks, I always say, four? It's because one of the primary motivating factors in my life is avoiding the disapproval of strangers. See, back in the day, if I wanted to watch, I don't know, Weekend at Bernie's 2, I'd have to try to think through in my head what other movies should I also rent to appear to be a well-rounded person. So if I wanted to rent that, then I was like, okay, I'm going to need, uh, let's see, something by Truffaut and maybe a Hitchcock? I mean, depending on the clerk, it might go a different direction. It might be, uh, better balance this out with, uh, let's see, I'm getting kind of a Italian horror vibe off of them. I guess maybe some Dario Argento. Better toss a Suspiria onto that stack. And sure, 8 out of 10 times, the movies that I was renting just to try to convince the clerk that the movie I actually wanted to rent I was watching ironically, I would return unwatched. But every once in a while, I would end up getting bored enough to actually watch one of the decoy movies and find out, hey, I actually really like Akira Kurosawa. But nowadays, I know damn well Netflix is never going to give me a curt but begrudging nod of approval. So it's pretty much all you got served all the time. And I guess what I'm saying is, you got served is fucking awesome. So if you guys want to pick that out on your streaming platform, then you can just imagine me giving you a curt but begrudging nod of acceptance and maybe just maybe, even raising my eyebrows slightly, as if to say, oh, not bad. Oh, and also there are totally four of us eating all that Chinese food. I definitely didn't order extra just so that I could make Chinese food sandwiches the next day. Anyway, on with the show. Without any further ado, let's, uh, do this. Today's Synopsis Rhyme is actually a collaboration between friends of the show, Devin Tuhey and Mark Paglia. Titans, titans, burning bright, like starfire in a fight. What Marv Wolfman authored script could explain this super teen comic? In what sometimes island state dost ye charge to meet your fate? On what wings doth good Zack flap? With what hand doth cyborg zap? When Raven fired the crowd's feels, and narrative did turn its wheels, did that Levitz add script only? Did he who wrote Crisis write thee? Titans, titans, burning bright, in an interstellar fight, 
Moore gazed back towards the abyss, but Hub gives us a synopsis. Synopsis? Thanks, Devin and Mark. New Teen Titans, Volume 2, Number 35. September, 1987. Crystal Chaos. Written by Marv Wolfman, drawn by Pat Broderick, inked by Romeo Tangal, lettered by Albert de Guzman, colored by Adrienne Roy, creative edited by Marv Wolfman, and consulting edited by Barbara Randall. I'm not sure if it's entirely fair, but in this case, I kind of interpret those last two credits as respectively pretend edited and for real edited. Teen Titan Roll Call Raven Wonder Girl Nightwing Starfire Cyborg Jericho and Beast Boy Previously in New Teen Titans our titular Teenage Titans finally wrapped up a long-running storyline by defeating Brother Blood. Hooray! Then they wrapped up another long-running storyline by defeating the Freshmaker and his hybrid. Hooray! Oh, and ever since freeing herself from Brother Blood's mind control, Raven has been happy, well-adjusted, and in control of her powers. Gadzooks! Since all of the previous storylines are wrapped up, am I still going to follow the format of asking three rhetorical questions about the previous plots and then answering them before getting into the synopsis of this issue? No, I am not. The Titans have a rare night off, so Dick and Coriander decide to celebrate by going out dancing at a club that seems dedicated to replicating that one scene in Xanadu where Gene Kelly and the other guy are imagining a hybrid of big band music and new wave rock. They have a pretty nice time. On their way out of the club, a young street vendor with an inexplicable phonetically spelled out accent sells them some overpriced Polaroid photos to commemorate the evening. Before they head to their respective homes, Starfire suggests that maybe they should move in together. Dick is like, nope. Coriander asks why not, which seems like a reasonable question, and Dick is like, because nope. That's why. Look, I'm totally over the fact that you got space married to save your planet. So, that's definitely not it. And you can tell I'm totally over it because I keep bringing it up to tell you that I'm over it. So it's not that. For sure. Cory is temporarily placated by this and hops in her cab. After she leaves, Dick looks at the photo of them together that he just bought and thinks to himself, Gosh, she sure is pretty. And I sure am over the fact that she's space married. Oh. Also, at some point during their conversation, it came up that, like Dick, Starfire is now no longer a teenager. Which is weird, because I don't remember seeing her sullenly nursing a cup of coffee any time in the recent past. Oh well, maybe she's just not big on celebrating birthdays. As Dick stares wistfully at the picture of his space girlfriend, across town in the theater district, Raven is excited to show Cyborg and Jericho her new apartment. She waxes enthusiastically about how nice it is to be near theater folk, but Victor is skeptical and doesn't particularly care for this section of town, which I guess has a lot of crime. Makes sense. The stench of grease paint has always attracted an unsavory element. When they arrive at their destination, Victor and Joey are pleasantly surprised that despite its shockingly affordable rent, Raven's new pad is pretty plush. They congratulate their teammate on her good fortune. 
Despite several major story arcs emphasizing the fact that Cyborg is now happy and well-adjusted and is no longer brooding and angry, Cyborg is brooding and angry. Raven's like, Hey, want me to use my magic good vibes to cheer you up? But Vic is like, No, my anger and resentment are important parts of who I am. That's why writers keep defaulting to them, I guess. Besides, at least my pain is real. Fair enough. As Cyborg paraphrases lyrics from the Crow soundtrack, on the other side of Central Park, a scene from a very different movie is taking place. A blonde guy and a red-haired lady are hanging out in a big old castle made of haphazardly strewn giant crystals. The captions call them Adam and Eve and say a bunch of stuff about paradise. Because that's a word that Marf Wolfman likes captions to say. Their golden outfits are a mix of science fiction and high fantasy, and they seem to be having a pretty nice time floating around and making out. After a few minutes of this, the outfits and the crystals fade out of existence, and the couple is just hanging out in their apartment. Turns out, Adam is a guy named Arthur, and Eve is named Evelyn. They're married. A little while ago, Arthur had some kind of operation and died on the operating table. Then he got better. Ever since then, he's had the ability to create lifelike shared hallucinations. Or illusions. Or something. And sometimes there's crystals, which I guess are part of it. Evelyn is like, These dream makeouts are nice and all, but you should start using your powers to make us rich. In fact, if you don't make us rich, I'm going to leave you. Art is like, gosh, I wanted to use my inexplicable, ill-defined powers to help people, but I don't want you to leave me, so I guess I'll make us rich. At Evelyn's insistence, Arthur changes them into a variation of their gilded high fantasy outfits and teleports them to a giant golden throne that he creates in the fancy part of town. Because, I guess, teleportation is also a thing that he can do. A crowd of richos form around the recently apparated couple and are like, What gives? Art is like, Hi, I'm magic. I can make your dreams, well, not exactly come true, but I can make them better dreams, I guess? Or something? The crowd is cynical. They're like, What are you going to charge for this vaguely described probably life-changing experience? Evelyn's like, Drug dealer in an after-school special rates, which is to say, first time's free, then once you're hooked, whatever we feel like charging. Sound good? The crowd is still skeptical, but they seem of the opinion that that does indeed sound good. A middle-aged businessman steps forward as the first volunteer. Arthur is like, okay, so what'll it be? Want to travel to distant stars? Slay a dragon? Share one last moment with a deceased loved one? The businessman is like, A tub orgy, please. Yeah, that tracks. The businessman instantly finds himself in the middle of a pretty good hot tub orgy. A few minutes later, the businessman snaps out of it and is like, Whoa, that was a pretty good hot tub orgy. The crowd's like, You really should have led with hot tub orgy. They all start clamoring to be next in line to sample Art's remarkable powers. The next day, over at the Titan Tower, the gang has a meeting to go over business matters. Wonder Girl gives a little PowerPoint presentation, the upshot of which is, the Titans' popularity with the general public is at an all-time high, but their finances are for shit. Nobody seems too concerned about the money side of things, 
because with the exception of Raven, they are all fucking loaded. By which I mean wealthy, not drunk. Although with rich people, who can fucking tell? Raven offers to try to chip in what she can, but the rest of the gang tells her not to sweat it. They're way more interested in the fact that now that Brother Blood's cat's paw, reporter Bethany Snow, is no longer running a smear campaign against them, everybody kind of likes the Titans again. To capitalize on this, Nightwing and Starfire have been making talk show appearances, and they've also been publicizing the fact that Victor volunteers at a school for children with disabilities. Perhaps still self-conscious about not being able to make a monetary contribution to the team, Raven offers that if public opinion ever turns against them, she could just use her powers to brainwash the city. The gang tells the avian-themed Azerathian that's probably not a great idea, and maybe try not to say stuff like that if she wants the Titans to continue to stay in the city's good graces. Which seems like a good call. Meanwhile, Arthur and Evelyn have moved their wish-fulfillment business to Central Park. I guess wish-fulfillment isn't quite accurate. Maybe more like wish-thinking-about-real-hard? Either way, business is booming. They are operating out of a big old castle made out of crystals that they set up in the middle of the park, and Arthur is doing a brisk trade in helping New Yorkers envision their fantasies. In fact, maybe too brisk a trade. Exercising his powers on this grandest scale is taking its toll on Arthur. He tells Evelyn that he's in pain and needs to take a break, but she's all, Be quiet, money. I, I mean, honey. We've got citizens to bilk. Get back to work. So reluctantly, Arthur gets back to work. Many wealthy Manhattanites are paying top dollar to forget, if only briefly, that they are dying of various diseases or experiencing profound grief. Apparently creating this kind of fantasy is significantly more taxing than manifesting hot tub orgies, and Art is starting to kind of lose it. He cries out in pain, but Evelyn's being a real asshole, and it's like, Hey, bullying you into doing this is hard work too, but you don't hear me complaining. Later that night, in her new apartment, Raven is meditating, when she suddenly starts having a vivid hallucination. She's back in Azeroth, and surrounded by her friends and teachers. This is weird because her demonic bad dad Trigon, who used to live in her bird-shaped soul tummy, ate all those guys a while back. The apparently resurrected Azerathians are like, Good news, Raven! We're all alive again! Neat, huh? And what's even neater is that, unlike when we were alive the first time, now we don't need to suppress our emotions anymore! We can have all the feelings we want! And, and it, it turns, turns out, out the, the feeling, feeling we like best is hating you! Well, that took a turn. Raven snaps out of this dream-turned-nightmare with a start, and it's like, Oh, shit! Something's gone all squirrely on the psychic plane! I'd better tell the rest of the Titans! It's a little unclear why or how, but I'm pretty sure Arthur's powers have started running amok, and just tried to lay a mystical whammy on Raven's mind. Back in New York, Arthur is freaking out pretty hard. Everyone who had been experiencing their heart's desire now starts experiencing their greatest fear. Evelyn yells at Arthur to snap out of it, but then she turns into a snake lady for a minute and starts thinking maybe she pushed her husband a little too far. Yeah, seems like maybe. Thanks to Raven's alert, the Titans are soon on the scene. They arrive at the inexplicably tangible Crystal Palace to investigate. 
While they aren't sure exactly what's going on, it's readily apparent that something is amiss. So the young heroes storm the palace like they were Ron Artest and the 2004 Pacers. Hooray! At this point, for some reason Art's powers seem to shift from doing dream-slash-nightmare nonsense to doing almost exclusively crystal-based nonsense. At first, crystals just start forming out of nowhere and hurling themselves at the Titans. But the agile adventurers managed to dodge or smash these magically materialized minerals, so the enigmatic enemy changes tactics and starts forming an enormous crystalline body around its erstwhile host. Regular Arthur is now imprisoned within the cleavage of this huge Crystal Arthur. As Regular Arthur cries out for help, huge Crystal Arthur starts swatting the titans around with his big ol' see-through hands. Nightwing is like, this huge crystal guy feeds on emotions. Wait, he does? How on earth could you possibly know that? I've read like nine more pages and seemingly countless more captions about this guy than you have, and I didn't know that. Unless... Unless Arthur's powers are still working the way they were at the start of the book, and Dick's greatest fantasy is fighting a giant crystal man who feeds on emotions. Whoa. Dick's into some weird shit. Okay, so I don't think that's actually what's supposed to be going on, but frankly, it makes about as much sense as anything else. Regardless, based on Dick's wild assumption, or hidden fantasy, or whatever, the Titans hatch a plan. Starfire picks up Raven and drops her off on the crystal monster's chest so that she can have a chat with regular Arthur. The spicy space princess then flies up to huge crystal Arthur's face and blasts it with a starbolt. Huge crystal Arthur hates that. At this point, things get a little confusing. And yes, I am aware of the things I said before that sentence. So, yeah. I think what happens is this. Jericho uses his creepy-ass power to jump into regular Arthur's body and then tries to break regular Arthur's contact with huge crystal Arthur, which is a manifestation of the mysterious powers that Arthur somehow obtained when he was briefly dead. Then Raven siphons out as much excess emotion out of Art's body as she can, while Starfire, Wonder Girl, and Cyborg all hit huge crystal Arthur as hard as they can at the same time. Huge Crystal Arthur explodes in a giant burst of blue and yellow space dots, and everything goes back to normal. I guess. Arthur doesn't have powers anymore, and Evelyn says she's sorry for being such an asshole. Raven says she feels that she's been redeemed by what has just happened, so maybe she was culpable in some way for Arthur having powers, but if she was, this is the first I've heard of it. She tells Art and Eve that they should be proud of all the good they did while Arthur had his powers. Not sure what she means by that, unless she's just talking about the hot tub orgy hallucination? Uh, okay. Yeah. Great job, guys. The end. You know, I never thought I'd say this, but I think the Teen Titans books that Bob Haney wrote made significantly more sense than this including the shape-shifting alien JFK shit. And joining us once again via the magic of telephonic communication is my good-for-many-things brother, Corey. Corey, how's it going? 
Hey, it's going pretty good. I have a colorful comic book and a hazy IPA in front of me, so it's not a bad start to a Saturday afternoon. How are you? I'm doing okay. I actually had a fairly nice morning of staring absentmindedly out the window and eating tree clamps, or as many of my fellow human men from Earth call them, pistachios, and then realizing that like half an hour had passed. So that was nice. Man, that's a lot of nuts. It really is. I think they're like the perfect treat because it is a small, easy task shelling them open that you get an immediate reward for. Oh, yeah. And you can just kind of get into a rhythm and just be like, all right, complete a task. Hey, good job. Complete a task. Hey, good job. And yeah, just, you know, stare absentmindedly out the window and probably creep out my neighbors. So... The funny thing about that is, yeah, that immediate reward mechanism, I think, highlights or perhaps makes disproportional the disappointment that happens when, A, you get one that cannot be opened with mere fingernails or thumbnails, Uh, or worse, you open one and there's nothing inside of it. Oh, man. Yeah, that is just like, what kind of a prank is being played on me here? David Blaine, you get out of my kitchen. Yeah, it's like, why is there even a shell with nothing inside of it? Like, that's still intact. How does that even happen? I'm mad just thinking about it. (laughs) Here's how rich I am. I've gotten to the point where if there's one that's sealed up that I can't easily open with my thumbnails, I just throw it in the compost. Whoa. I know. Living your best life. Well, are you ready to talk about a comic book? I think so. All right. Corey. What did you think of this comic book? Um, I think it was nice to have one of those kind of standalone stories we get after, you know, a big adventure or story arc or some downtime. I liked this one, I think, better than the murder mystery one. Wow, really? Just on account of, I don't know, the little glimpses into the day-to-day realities of the Teen Titans, like the fact that they basically are their own HOA. Oh, that would be the worst self-help book. Be your own HOA. (laughs) I guess if you don't have an HOA, you kind of are your own HOA, but that doesn't really make a difference because then your neighbors are going to do whatever your neighbors are going to do. They sure are. Mostly get creeped out by my tree clam eating ways. Did you make eye contact with any neighbors while you were doing that? Corey, you know me. I never make eye contact with anyone. Okay, you're fine then. That's not creepy. There's just a guy looking out the window. Good. So I, I'm i not convinced I'm crazy about, is it Pat Broderick? It is Pat Broderick, yeah. So some of the panels are really like, kind of have this interesting, like almost painterly quality to him. But I don't know. I kind of felt like some of the Titans faces were drawn a little weirdly for what I'm used to. I know what you mean there. Yeah, Pat Broderick is an artist that I have very mixed feelings about. He has runs on comics that I really enjoy. He did a two-issue series that I think was intended to be a much longer series for Atlas Comics in the 70s called Planet of the Vampires, which I actually really dug. And I think he is maybe more suited for sci-fi type stuff than he is for superhero stuff, because, yeah, I wasn't crazy about his art in this issue. And previously, I'd mostly been familiar with that Planet of the Vampires, and he had a run on Micronauts, too, that I enjoyed. Mm. He also, if you look up a picture of the dude, 
I'm actually going to email it to you. Just give me a second. He has one of those beards that, like, it's a mustache and a goatee that are growing into each other and overtaking his mouth in a way that I find really disturbing. Oh, no. <laughs> Did you get the picture? I did. That's why I said, oh, no. It looks like he's trying to grow a duck bill. You've condemned yourself to a life of no yogurt or ice cream with, oh. with that facial hair, I hope. I, it's just terrifying to me. <laughs> I find it very unsettling in a way I have difficulty explaining. You're just supposed to get scissors and trim your mustache, right? That's yeah. what most people would do. That's true, but honestly, if it was a full beard, if it was all over his face, I'd just be like, oh yeah, he's you know going for the cousin knit look. That's fine. It's weird, though, because he can't see his mouth at all. It's like he's trying to grow his own face mask. Mm. Or duckbill. Either way. Unsettling and doesn't speak well as an artist of the aesthetic decisions that he makes. So yeah, I wasn't crazy about the art in this issue for the most part. I know he had a run on Batman that's generally pretty well regarded. Uh, he was the artist who introduced the character Tim Drake, who became the third Robin. But yeah, I got weirded out by some of the faces particularly sometimes they looked really beautiful he draws nice eyeballs he likes to draw bigger eyeballs than some artists but i wasn't blown away by the art and also i wasn't blown away by this story i liked like you did the smaller touches where you get to see glimpses of the titans everyday life like you said their homeowner association meeting essentially where they talk about paying dues and pr stuff i like those kinds of meetings i liked the little tour of raven's new apartment i liked dick and coriander going on their date i thought that stuff was all fun i wanted a whole issue of that i think part of the reason that this felt weird to have a self-contained issue like this cuz i like the self-contained issues too is that we did just have one so recently because you had the wrap-up of the Brother Blood story, and then we get the brief little reset. And then there was like a, oh shit, and oh yeah, we also had that hybrid story. And then you get another brief reset after that. The timing of it felt weird. And also, the whole thing with the crystal dream fulfillment people just confused the shit out of me. Maybe we can talk through it a little bit, but my mind just kind of rejected that whole subplot or plot. That's the A story of the comic, essentially. It felt like when I was in high school and would be reading like a math textbook and I would get to the end of a paragraph and be like, well, in my mind, I sounded out all those words and now I'm at the end of it. I don't know what any of that fucking meant. Yeah, I had the same experience, especially at the conclusion of the, the fight scene. I actually had to write it out a little bit. <laughs> like, I did the in same my notes. thing. I was like, okay, so Joe is controlling Mr. Crystal, and that's what enables Raven to suck up the rest of his pain, freeing him? Yeah, I just don't know what was happening with that part. Yeah, because, so, that's, yeah, my thinking was, so, okay, there's this giant, like, 60-foot-tall crystal man with the little human guy that made him. Uh-huh. Sitting in his, between his pectoral muscles, and um, he's trying to swat raven off of his chest as she's trying to extract the badness out of his human form mm -hmm. and so joe jumps into the human guy's head to control the crystal body to stop him from trying to swat raven off and that's what enables her to suck all the bad feelings out of his soul so that he can become free i guess 
Yeah. How, I mean, I couldn't think of another way to explain it. There's so much that I can't think of a way to explain <laughs> with this that the comic doesn't even try to explain large swaths of it. Like, where that thing came from or what it is. Like, you get the guy, his name is Arthur, his wife's name is Evelyn, mm-hmm. and he almost died. Mm-hmm. And then when he didn't die or came back to life, he then had the magic power to make people's dreams not come true, but be dreams. Mm-hmm. He reaches into them and it's like, here's your greatest fantasy. Have a nice dream about it. Mm-hmm. So, okay, that happens. But also there's crystals for some reason. But also if your dream is to not have a debilitating disease, then that is manifested. Oh, I didn't think he was curing them. I thought he was just giving them a nice time not thinking about it. I really wasn't sure about any of that. It starts off and then comes back to this whole, like, Garden of Eden parable. And, like, they're introduced as being Adam and Eve, although it's Arthur and Evelyn. And Mm -hmm. then there's a thing with, like, oh, we had the Garden of Eden, but I was the serpent. Because she goes full Lady Macbeth in this. Yeah, that was my least favorite part about the story was it was just so on the nose, right? It's like, here's this greedy, horrible woman who makes this good man do a bad thing. Mm-hmm. And then he almost dies. And at the end, she's like, oh, shit, I was greedy and horrible. I'm so sorry. Everything's better. That was one of my least favorite parts of the issue. It's funny because this is, frankly, one of my least favorite issues of New Teen Titans that we've covered, just because I just could not wrap my mind around what was happening. And unlike other stories where that's happened, the artwork hasn't been solid enough to carry me through that. <laughs> you need to be more like me, man. Just relax. <laughs> Just be like, oh, okay, that didn't really make any sense, but the pictures were pretty. But I see what you're saying. The pictures weren't as pretty. So Yeah, the pictures weren't pretty enough to make me be like, oh, okay, I'm fine with that not making sense. The other thing was there was just so much happening with that story, and they tried to cram so much into it. I feel like right before this issue happened, it was Marv Wolfman just being like, dude, I just found out about this thing called symbolism, and it is going to blow your mind. <laughs> and Bruce is like, well, how does it work? And he's like, I don't fucking know. But there was a snake, and so you can make this lady like a reptile. <laughs> That's a symbol. I don't know what it is, but I'm going to pile as much of it as I can into this comic book, and then maybe by the end I'll figure it out. Nope. Oh, well. Yeah. I think one of the tells that Wolfman thinks he's writing something profound is he just drops a brick on the paradise button to make sure that it stays pressed. Like, he kept repeating that word in the comic book where the stand-ins for the DN agents all suicided, and we saw him use it a lot in the Tamaran storyline whenever the pros got purple between Starfire and her sister. And boy, howdy, does it crop up a lot in this one. You know what else just struck me as weird about this one is that Raven is suddenly almost like happy-go-lucky. That's something that they've been building to in the last couple of issues. I don't know. It felt too abrupt for me. Yeah, she is suddenly very, like, Holly Golightly. 
Yeah, she's like prancing around, showing off her new apartment in such a joyful manner. I was like, what have you done with Raven? <laughs> okay, if you found a nice furnished okay, studio okay. <laughs> apartment that has utilities included for $400 in New York City, you would be skipping around too, buddy. Yeah, I know. I'd also be <laughs> be quoting the moon moonlighters. Hamana, hamana, hamana. <laughs> I just don't freaking believe it. I think you mean the honeymooners. Oh, what did I say? The moonlighters? Yeah, I don't think Sybil Shepherd ever said that. <laughs> no, that was the Bruce Willis. Oh, okay, my bad. Yeah, so I get those shows mixed up all the time. <laughs> Pow, zoom, booger from <laughs> Better Off Dead to the moon. <laughs> uh, no, it doesn't work. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. But you're right. It does seem like Raven goes from Wednesday Adams from the Adams family to Manic Pixie Dream Girl without hitting any of the stops in between. I think the only reason that didn't stand out to me more is just because there is just so much going on in this comic. Another thing about the artwork, just the layout of it, there were like a bunch of pages that had like between nine and 12 panel grids on it, which I think was just working in all of the dialogue and caption bubbles. But it was just too much, and mm-hmm. I hated how hard I had to work to try to make sense of it and that I still wasn't able to, to the point where I was like, this is my least favorite issue that wasn't super racist or sexist. And then I was like, okay, wait, it was actually pretty sexist. And then I remembered the, like, picture hustler dude was like, oh, and it was kind of racist, too. Mm. Yeah, the other weird thing about the art, like, I, th- I think it's pretty much encapsulated in that first page where it shows the band performing and the people dancing. Yeah, and we are going to get back to that. (laughs) It's just like, here are all the ideas (laughs) that I have about things, and I'm just going to put them all together, squished up. Yes, absolutely, and there was no coherence to it. Like, I honestly thought there might be some time travel involved from that first panel. Like, when it opened up, when they are in that inexplicable nightclub, I was just like, oh, are they setting up that there's part of the city that never got fixed from Crisis on Infinite Earths, where it's still all of the time happening at the same time? Mm -hmm. Because it's not just the band on stage, but the band on stage is definitely a big part of it. The rhythm section is all wearing tuxedos, and then there's like a new wave dude in a trench coat with a popped collar and a flying V guitar, and a dude up front in a fluorescent pink zoot suit, and then backup singers who are like the Andrew sisters, but in mini skirts and like bikini tops. And apparently that's ballroom dancing. And then in the panel following it, you have kind of like a Gomez Adams looking guy doing double heavy metal double horns. Yeah, but wearing a full tuxedo. Uh-huh. And then next to him, you have Coriander in a wedding dress, I think, but also cataract glasses. Oh, I thought those were like Bosworth Oakleys. Oh, they might be. It's tough for me to tell. And then you have Dick, who is just like, I like his outfit. And I mean, this will come up in the sartorially speaking, but he's just wearing jeans, a white button down shirt, a sweater vest and a blazer. And then the woman behind him is wearing a bathing suit. And... I did not know what was happening, and we haven't gotten to the confusing part yet. Well, that's, that was my point, right? Like, those, that's opening panels, just like, okay, here's what you're in for. Have fun. Yeah. 
there's no sense in this rocky soil for my <laughs> mind to find purchase on. I was thinking, like, oh, man, Dick Grayson's having a midlife crisis, but the kind where, like, you're a young person, but now you have to dress like a middle-aged person? Is that a thing? I think so. Yeah, a reverse midlife crisis. Yeah. The quarter-life crisis where you're aspirationally in midlife. Mm -hmm. And he and Coriander do not match. No, aesthetically at all. I mean, nobody on those pages matches anyone else. And that was one of my favorite parts of the book. <laughs> <laughs> we also see Dick brings up again that he has turned 20. He's not a teen anymore. So maybe that's the, the beginning of his quarter-life crisis. Like, I need to button down and lead a grown-up lifestyle, whatever that means. But you see that Coriander is apparently not a teenager either anymore, which has never really been mentioned before. But... If they're both 20, then presumably Wonder Girl and Cyborg have always been portrayed as some of the older members of the team. We have no idea what age Jericho is supposed to be, but he's always seemed like he's about 20. It's mm. weird that they're still called the Teen Titans. Sure is. I guess you can't change it, though, right? Because it's a successful franchise and whatnot. Yeah, it seems like it's a branding issue, that that's why they still have that as part of their name. Which, I understand, it's not like the new kids on the block ever became the grown-ups who have lived here for a while. The Backstreet Boys never became the Backstreet Men. Uh, mm -hmm. Kid and played and turned into grown-up and work. <laughs> Worst. Worst house party ever. Oh, man. Like, uh... <laughs> if Babyface started to slowly transition and started calling himself Toddler Face. Yeah, none of those work, really. No. Yeah, I think you're right. It's just a branding. Yeah, I mean, every once in a while you end up with a, uh, like, uh, like, teen idols going to, well, I guess Minor Threat is actually also a thing about how young they were. But then mm -hmm. Fugazi isn't. Mm-mm. So that's, I think, maybe the one successful example. I guess Lil Bow Wow dropped the Lil from his name and is now just Bow Wow. All right, so we got Ian McKay and Bow Wow, the only two people who have figured this out. <laughs> who have figured out how to grow up in the entertainment industry. Mm, mm -hmm. So eventually, not for like over a year's worth of comics from now, but it does eventually get shortened to just the New Titans, which makes sense. I mean, that name is just sitting there. It's a cool name. Yeah. And I think starting with issue 50, that's what it turns into. So were you able to make sense of Art and Evelyn's business plan? I thought of it like, you know how people pay to go have ayahuasca trips? Uh-huh. Like, these guys are basically, like, they're described as faith healers, but essentially they're, like, people line up and make a donation or whatever, and then they send them on a little trip internally in their mind's eye. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, they're kind of like, um, what's the word for that? Like, the people that are, like, the guides for uh, psychedelic stuff? Oh, like a, like a trip guide? Yeah. Yeah, they're, they're like Macho Man Randy Savage with his song, <laughs> Speaking from the Heart. Let the eagle soar. <laughs> I've soared with the eagles and slithered with the snakes and everything in between. I am your friend. I am the macho man. 
you know, I have almost no interest in psychedelics these days, but when I when I think about it, I'm like, well, oh no, that song would be pretty inspiring. I think the beautiful part of that song is you don't need the psychedelics if you have the song. You can mm. just listen to Speaking from the Heart by Macho Man Randy Savage and then, you know, save yourself some uh, some money and some potential later flashbacks and panic attacks. Yeah, yeah, I'm all for, for that. Not the first time that's come up on the show, I think. No, not by a long shot. <laughs> but the extent to which Evelyn goes full evil Lynn and is straight Lady Macbething. No, you need to milk these suckers for all the money they've got, or I'll leave you. It's so explicit how exploitative she's being of Arthur and his powers. It's really frustrating what a one-note character she's portrayed as, and it makes her vague nod towards repentance at the end seem really unconvincing. And then also, like, the service that they provide is making your dreams come dream. And then at the end that Raven's like, no, you helped a lot of people. Did he? Well, I guess Martin Handler wasn't going to get his four-way otherwise. That was the weirdest part. (laughs) Like, so, okay, like, she helps a lady (laughs) whose baby died in childbirth, like, hold her infant for the first time. I'm like, okay, I can see there being some therapeutic value to that. That makes sense as a, ah, now you have this memory. The dude who I would guess was born with a fatal disfigurement, who they just drew looking like the Quasimodo character from the animated Hunchback of Notre Dame, I can see there being like, okay, he got to experience what it would be like if he didn't have to deal with that and didn't know that he would be dying soon. But the one that it kicks off with is, I'm going to give you a nice dream about having a hot tub orgy. Mm -hmm. And he's like, yeah. And that's the one that wins the crowd over, which I guess makes sense, but is also just like, huh, okay. Yeah, I guess that's a valuable service to provide. Well, I mean, he experiences complete love. Okay. I mean, also guiltless fantasies (laughs) and unquestioned passion. I mean, I'm not saying it doesn't seem like a nice time. But I also, I mean, one of the big questions I had is it's never even addressed where that power comes from, why it transitions because he uses it too much and is tired, or it hurts him when he does it for some reason. I thought he had, like, Raven's powers for a while, like that he was psychically healing these people from, I don't know, I guess not being businessman horn dogs. <laughs> Ooh, hey, I, I have a thought. Yeah? So since this is complicated and confusing already maybe what's going on is that little side story about raven journeying to azeroth and finding out all the azeroth people can now feel emotions again Uh uh-huh maybe that's connected to this guy's power of turning into a giant crystal emotion absorbing thing i read it that he was doing that to her Because she viewed that as a psychic attack on her from this new creature. And that was like him or the creature lashing out. And that's when the dreams started turning into nightmares for people around him. So I think he was giving her that nightmare. Oh, yeah, that makes more sense. I mean, kind of. Because she does say it's a 
an attack, and it's not Trigon because he's gone. So, right. Who was it? Let's go find this jerk. Okay. Yeah, you're right. Okay. But it doesn't explain why he would start attacking her, or the creature that turns into crystal starts attacking her, or anything. I think it's like a not really Lovecraftian thing, but like this emotional critter that lives in a different dimension that hitchhiked into this guy because he was in that liminal, like near death state. Okay. And like hitched a ride with him back to the consensus reality and then needed to grab all the energy from Times Square to grow himself a new crystal body and try and take over New York City. Okay, that actually makes sense. There we go. <laughs> okay, now I love this comic. <laughs> I they could have put that in exposition boxes. Yeah, it wouldn't have hurt things any. Most of my notes for this issue are just a bunch of big question marks and swear words. Another thing that annoyed me in this issue is just a really minor moment. But when it's when the Titans show up in Central Park, which is where the dudes built their Crystal Palace, there's half a joke that they like somehow either edited out or skipped the setup to that could have otherwise been an okay joke. The cured ham? Yeah! <laughs> I wanted that to work so badly, but I was like, wait, did they? They didn't set it up, and it would have been so easy to set it up. Here's the dialogue. That's the Faith Healer's Temple. I saw it on the news last night. Great, just what we need. Another brother blood. And then Beast Boy says, what does this guy do? Cure hams? You need to say he claims he can cure people. That's all you need. You need that sentence setting up that joke because you wrote a punchline, but you didn't write the joke leading to it. And it made me so annoyed. Cyborg tries to rescue it by saying something shitty to Beast Boy, but yeah, you're right. It's. I think you've been <laughs> frustrated by me doing that a couple times where I <laughs> will just put the punchline. Like, that's the part I remember. <laughs> like, hey, help me remember this joke. Yeah, that's always a fun experience. All I remember is there's a parrot with a brick. Oh, that's a that's a good joke. It is a good joke. But that is one that you need, like, a lot of setup for, because the whole point is that it's a slow burn. And if you bring up the punchline before the setup, as with most jokes, it ruins the joke. <laughs> yep. <laughs> this is also, like, the third story arc in a row that, I guess not in a row, because the Zandian terrorists was not resolved, although it should have been, by Raven ravening as hard as she could and fixing everything. But it's definitely becoming a running theme that ever since the Brother Blood storyline, and including the Brother Blood storyline, if there's an issue that the Titans can't figure out a way out of, Raven ravens as hard as she can and everything's fine. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I'm wary of this Raven X Machina thing. You know what was also unsettling to me about her powers? You know the scene where they're sitting around talking about uh, their, basically like their PR offensive? Yeah. <laughs> and how people like them again? And Gar's like, yeah, fuck it, whatever. I don't understand how this stuff works. And they're like, no, you know, popular opinion's pretty important. And Raven's like, well, I could just brainwash everybody. Yeah! <laughs> Wonder Girl's like, Raven? <laughs> no, Raven. That's not cool. No, Raven. That was the first lesson you learned, like, literally a hundred issues ago. Yeah, just don't go around 
messing with people's stuff like that. Yeah. And I mean, even the gang's response to it is just like, nah, because if people found out about it, they'd be mad. Yeah, it was, it was actually a pretty troubling panel. Like, Garth's ignorance of why that's important, you know, even though just because that comes from a place of extreme privilege, mm-hmm. was like the most innocent part of that whole exchange, <laughs> which is disturbing. Yeah. Nobody comes out of this issue unscathed, frankly. I think I mentioned it briefly before, but with the photo vendor in Times Square, I was trying to figure out what was going on with that character. He was drawn kind of ethnically ambiguous, and I wasn't sure from his dialogue. It sounded like maybe Wolfman was trying to riff on Short Round from Temple of Doom, but the phonetically spelled out slaying or pigeon English, which I couldn't quite figure out which it was supposed to be, was unsettling. And I, I was also like, is he trying to make Oki the new Mebby? Because that guy said Oki a lot. Mm-hmm. Did you have a read on that character? I thought he was supposed to be drawn as like like maybe a black or Puerto Rican kid. But the dialogue is, yeah, is confusing at best. Yeah. Okay with three E's. Yeah, like, how do you even say that? Okay. Okay. That's not a way to sell Polaroids. No. Well, fuck it. You ready to move into the minutia? Yeah. Let's do it. All right. Rick, would you mind singing us in? We got minutia. It's not the biggest part. It's just minutia. Like Corey eating farts. We got minutia. Time to sweat the small stuff. Thanks, Rick. Are you not thinking of because you're still stewing on the fart eating thing? It's it's been so long. Just, <laughs> I know about a hundred episodes ago we gave the disclaimer that it's actually you who were the inventor of uh, the politely absorbing your own farts through your mouth type thing, but uh oh no. I just feel like there's a whole generation of listeners that think that that's my deal, you know? Okay, it was a while ago. I don't think it's a whole generation. (laughs) Well, just in podcast years. Oh, God. I don't want to even think how old we are in podcast years. Oh, (laughs) ancient (laughs) farting dust. (laughs) Eating dust farts. (laughs) (laughs) And that's something that you do, right? No, no, no. (laughs) Well, Corey, what, what category do you feel like starting off with? Ah, shit. Let's, uh, let's go back to page one, and I, we already basically described it. It was just so damn confusing, but I like a, uh, a hot pink zoot suit. Yeah, sartorially speaking, there is a lot to talk about on page one, and yes, we covered most of the fashion there. I like the hot pink zoot suit as well. The wildly disparate, but very committed costuming of the band really caught me off guard. I know that you can have bands where it's like, everybody's committing to a different aesthetic. But I feel like it's way more common to have, like, everybody's committed to one aesthetic, and then there's the drummer. Who's just like, yeah, fuck that, I'm not doing that. Mm -hmm. But with this, it really was just everybody was doing their own thing. There's also no bass player. Yeah. I mean, they're probably fucking putting in the bass on those keyboards. Yeah. Uh, it was the 80s. That, that was a thing. That's true. 
It's better than when the keyboards were synthesizing the horn section, I think, but but still not great. Yeah. There was also a couple of different red sweater vests that showed up in this issue. We talked about dicks, but a few pages later, we see that Jericho's wearing one of those as well. So I guess that was just a thing Pat Broderick thought the teens or recent teens were really into. Red sweater vests? Yeah. Also, we mentioned Starfire's cataract sunglasses, or as you called them, the Brian Bosworth wraparounds. I enjoyed those. I think those make sense if it is part of her disguise to have those kind of like Terminator-y cover-up-your-whole-head sunglasses. Mm-hmm. Still doesn't do a lot to disguise the fact that she has bright orange skin and magic space fire hair. But, I don't know, better than the little John Lennon glasses. I guess. Yeah, it's a really weird look. It really is. Because, yeah, it is otherwise just like a somewhat casual summer wedding dress with Terminator sunglasses. I really like it because to me, it's like she's, you know, this fancy fashion model, but also she's an alien. Uh huh. <laughs> and you could just imagine her thinking, oh, this looks cool. Right? I mean, I feel like high fashion models are always kind of aliens and do shit like that. So, yeah, kind of works. Yeah, that's that's a good point. I don't understand how that all works either. I think one of the key things about, like, fashion is that if you are a very beautiful person, then whatever you're wearing just looks fashionable and works. That could be, but yeah, I, I often have been confused by the high fashion thing, you know, like at a doctor's office or something and you're leafing through the ads and fashion magazine I, I mean i usually gravitate towards the highlights magazine and try to learn some life lessons from goofus and gallant but if they don't have those or some asshole kid is hogging them then yeah yeah you gotta pick up a l or a cosmo or whatever and uh, those are fashion magazines right maybe but so here's the thing you said that like if a beautiful person is wearing whatever then it becomes fashion but i feel like a lot of the photography will take people that are beautiful people and you know through use of makeup and garbage or you know, <laughs> pieces of plastic and other things make them less conventionally attractive yeah i can see that i don't get it i don't either another thing that i don't get in this issue is our buddy arthur's fucking cinderella hair like he has the biggest it borders on starfire-esque but when he's in his high fantasy mode, which there are some choices being made in those dream outfits that he and Eve are wearing. Cinderella, like like the band? Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, like the band that did those hot dog commercials. Wait, what? You haven't seen those? Back when they were starting off, Cinderella did some local hot dog commercials. <laughs> They're pretty great. Oh, I love that. Yeah, I was actually, that's where I was going to go next, was uh, Arthur and Evelyn's uh, get-up. Man, that is something. Their outfits change a lot, like, just kind of, I guess, based on Arthur's mood or whimsy or whatever. But one of the constants is they almost always have those uh, Trigon-esque peekaboo crotch curtains, with the main difference being that Evelyn's has just a big cotton ball in the middle of hers. It's like a a very old hairy person's merkin. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, I don't know why that's part of her fantasy, but okay. Or just, yeah, cottontail bunny rabbit. Yeah, but wearing it in the front? Like, it seems weird. Yeah, other than that, yeah, there's some just like weird high fantasy paperback cover. I don't know, just strange bronze chest plate shit going on. Mm-hmm. And just wild tangles of hair metal hair. Oh, yeah. That is both alarming and impressive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know how Arthur keeps his, uh, I guess that's a crotch curtain, but it's also like goes all the way up to his neck. But it has no sides, and the only thing holding it on is like this little tiny belt. You see, there was a period where a lot of pro wrestlers would wear t-shirts that were just ponchos like that. Mm. But it's like if it was like a floor-length t-shirt that just had no sleeves or side. Mm -hmm. But is also like glued like from your clavicle to your navel. Yeah, somehow. It's a very odd look. And Evelyn's got a, I guess, polka-dotted? bikini top with really active like tassels <laughs> hanging from the bottom yeah some of the time like not tassels over the nipples but like a fringe under them like you would see maybe hanging from the top of a 70s cabs window yeah dingo balls yeah the dingo balls Well, keeping with the theme of, uh, I mentioned, 80s hair metal, and I think that could be considered a timestamp, what other timestamps did you find in this issue? Well, I guess, hypothetically, at some point in time, you could get a decent studio in New York City for 400 bucks a month, including gas and other utilities. Yeah, so I think that timestamp would set this comic as coming out in 1932. <laughs> it, it did seem pretty ridiculous to me, but... Uh... I, I did call that out because yeah. it used to be cheaper. Yeah, no, I, I had that too. I remember I did used to have a studio apartment in a fairly desirable part of Portland that was, yes, a piece of shit, but was also $350 a month. <laughs> yeah, but you also had to deal with uh, the owner of Satin's Helper. That's true. It was, it was Sat, Satin's Hammer actually, oh. uh, was the baseball bat that he had. <laughs> yes, I think Bill has come up on the podcast before, but the building manager of that building was a very colorful gentleman, mm. to say the least. For other timestamps, we did have Nightwing mentioning that he and Coriander had had a recent appearance on the David Letterman show. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I caught that one, too. Part of the PR offensive. Sans mm -hmm. brainwashing. I think my favorite timestamp, though, is when they are describing the fancy part of town that Adam and Eve or Art and Evelyn have taken their revival show to. It lists amongst the things that you could buy there computerized memo pads. Mm. So, did they mean? I, I don't even think the Apple Newton was out at that point. But, like, I guess they're talking about some kind of a proto-Apple Newton? Or, like, uh, did Palm Pilots come out by this point? I don't think so. I don't think they had, no. Hmm. I mm -hmm. think somebody just, like, suckered Wolfman into buying a fancy Etch-A-Sketch at one point. Yeah, it's a computerized um, notepad. Yeah, it's a computerized memo pad. Mm -hmm. yeah, That'll be yeah. $8. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> 
It is weird, though, because they go to great lengths to establish that they are setting up their revival show on the fancy part of town. Seaport. Yes, in the fancy part of Seaport, the newly refurbished and trendy section of town with fancy stores and expensive restaurants. But then later on, it's in Central Park. Did they just move? Uh, yes. Okay. <laughs> just checking. Yeah, they can't go into every detail in the story of, come on. Or, you know, any of them. But also all of them? It is a really weird mix of so much explanation and so little sense. Yes, which I think is also maybe a bit of a timestamp for the 80s. Mm. Yeah, this issue, I don't think it was the case, but it has a cocaine-fueled enthusiasm to it. That does somehow feel very 80s specific. Every issue of a Teen Titans comic has a Beast Boy, the worst of Teen Titans, and also an Aqualad, the greatest of Teen Titans. In this issue, who'd you have as your Aqualad and who did you have as your Beast Boy? So, setting aside for the moment that she was willing to brainwash everybody into liking them, (laughs) Raven really did save the day. Mm -hmm. So I went with Raven. I had the same choice with the same caveat. Yeah, I I was very unsettled by that one instance, but overall, she was, as I mentioned, the Raven ex machina that saved the day at the end. So, you know, good for her. And also, way to get a deal on an apartment. Yeah, no kidding. Conversely, for my Beast Boy, I had Cyborg. Because you know what's a shitty compliment? I'm proud of you for being lucky. (laughs) What a fucking dick. Yeah, I don't feel like he was very happy for her with the apartment unveiling. He was being so negative. I mean, he did say homina, homina, homina. So, Mm -hmm. you know, that was nice. He did like the apartment, but yeah, I'm gonna lead through his attempt to be supportive. Starts off, he's very impressed with the apartment. Then he looks outside and says, Outside, all I see are lowlife and degenerates that are tearing this city down. This ain't some kind of Oz, kid. And, I mean, first of all, that's a weird, shitty attitude to have towards street crime. Like, when he says that he looks out and sees the degenerates that are tearing the city down, you would think he would be living in a fancy part of town where... People are actually degenerates that are tearing the city down uh, rather than looking at like street level crime that way. But then seems to me anyone needs luck to make it. But I figure you got all that and more. You lucked out, which I'm proud of you. (laughs) Wait, what? That is a pretty underhanded uh, compliment, huh? Yeah. You know why you got this? Because of. Good luck and unearned privilege. I'm proud of you. Zing. Mm-hmm. Maybe that should go in the Bozone. Yeah, I have a very specific choice for Bozone. Who did you have as your Beast Boy? Man, just for continuing to be so weird and distant and unable to communicate that he's having trouble processing his own feelings to Starfire, uh, Dick. Yeah. He's so vague. Like, she's like, I love you, we should move in. He's like, I love you too. Mm, no. I I gotta go. I'm so busy tomorrow. (laughs) Bye. (laughs) Yeah. Like, just say, like, hey, that's a lot to take in. I love you. Um, I I got 
I got a lot of stuff I got to sort out and I'm going to go work on that, you know, other than just saying like, oh, Tuesday's super busy. Yeah, he he is being weird and being very like wishy-washy about, yeah, that space marriage thing doesn't bother me anymore, but it still bothers me. And uh, I'll say that I'm over it, but I'm clearly not over it. And I'm just not ready to move on, but I am. Uh... She's so beautiful. But I don't know. Yeah, no provided motivation for it and no real discussion or insight about it. Just like kind of just wallowing in his own gloom about it and indecision. Mm -hmm. Again, you know, easy to cast aspersions when (laughs) you're you're on the outside looking in. Sure, sure. It would not surprise me if someone else had described me that exact same way, especially at the age of 20. Right. That's (laughs) so, you know, that caveat on there i i did go with dick for those reasons i think that's a fair choice well you mentioned the bow zone so let's take this party there what instance of one character calling another character a bozo either literally or metaphorically do you want to talk about i guess just the the unintended joke that gar is indeed a ham but that Cyborg wishes he was cured. Yeah, I don't think that was an unintended joke. I think it was just a poorly executed one, but I think that definitely counts. It was was an unrealized joke, right? Yes, it was a joke deferred, which is a joke denied. (laughs) Yes, which is disappointing. Other than that, I don't know. I I had a tricky time for the Bozone. I guess we got a green jeans with two, two Gs. Um, Mm -hmm. on page 14 that we've seen a bunch of times before from cyborg to beast boy yeah as i was reading through it i expected there to be one from evelyn to arthur but i mean she was being really cruel and manipulative of him but she didn't overtly insult him at any point for my choice i went with the comic book insulting me In the sequence where the lecherous businessman is imagining his hot tub orgy, the final panel is a close-up of his heavy-lidded face in a look of lecherous ecstasy, and it says, This is your mind, Martin Handler. And then, in a different colored caption, as there is a close-up of his, like, sleepy-eyed orgasm face, it just says, This is you. (laughs) And for a second, I got really defensive and was like, no, Marv Wolfman, this is you. Uh, oh, that's funny. So that was my Bozone. Wow. That's the first time that uh, we've had a direct insult to one of the hosts of the show. I mean, I don't think it was me specifically. I think it was the reader in general. So he was insulting you too, Corey. No, it very clearly says this is you. <laughs> Stop being such a creep. <laughs> Tough but fair. Who did you have as your president of the drama club? There was certainly some competition for the nomination, but Mm -hmm. at the end of the day, I had to go with the Cinderella-haired Mr. Crystal himself, Arthur. Yeah. Dude was dramatic. I had the same choice. There were some serious contenders in terms of backups. I had both Raven and Cyborg. Raven for her interest in luxuriating in the emotions of the dancers and theater district that she had just moved into 
And I had Cyborg for kind of the opposite reason of pulling the like classic goth mope move of no, I need to feel my pain. It's what's real. Yep, totally. I had uh, Borgie as my runner-up for that when he snatches Raven's hand from his lapel. It's like, mm-mm, I want to be sad. Yeah, but I mean, ultimately, how do you not go with Arthur if for no other reason than the fashion choices he makes for he and his partner to appear in front of their audience in? Just some Big swings being taken by Art and Eve there. Mm -hmm. As we mentioned, I don't think the artwork in this issue was by and large to either of our tastes. But that being said, what was your favorite panel? Yeah, so I think I mentioned at the outset how some of the panels had almost a painterly quality and then others were not so great. But the one that had that sort of almost like watercolor look, is on page seven, and it's the South Street Seaport. Mm. It's just a little panel that's like kind of this city view. Yeah, you're totally right. I really hadn't noticed that one until you brought it up, but it's got a really nice, like, almost post-impressionist look to it. Yeah, it's like a, I don't know, acrylic or oil painting that you'd find at a Goodwill or something that would look cool on the wall of a bar or something. Like, it has that sort of look to it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, as I said, I wasn't crazy about the art in general, but there were some definitely some very nice panels. I think one of my favorites is from the sequence where Raven is having her freak out about Azeroth, where the dream machine that has taken over Arthur's body has decided to, I don't know, somebody jostled it in the switch flipped to Nightmare, but the overlay of Trigon over the images of the Azerathians I think was really well done. And Azeroth in general is pretty well done. The scene with her just standing on the rock formation with all of the Jupiters hanging out in the background is pretty chill. But yeah, the overlay of the fuchsia image of Trigon's face over the Azerathians being like, neat, we can hate now, Mm. I thought was pretty chill. It was. I also had... Page 16 is one of my favorites, specifically the close-up on Raven as she's whispering to herself, Azeroth, and her eyes are, like, super huge. Mm-hmm. What I did not like is that in the corresponding panel, I didn't realize before that, maybe maybe we talked about this already, but Azerathian architecture dictates that every structure must be topped with a large bird. Yeah, I mean, I think they're trying to scare away Trigon. <laughs> what is up with that? <laughs> that is... One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen birds in one panel. Well, that may be part of her dream fantasy because it starts off with, oh, all the Azerathians that I thought were gone, they're back and they and they can now love. Uh, so her just like thinking like, wow, Azerath, but even better than that, it's got extra birds. <laughs> It's like a beautiful dream come true. Like my own personal hot tub orgy. Uh, <laughs> that involves extra birds for her? Yeah, Raven's a freak. I can reconsider giving her the Aqualad <laughs> on account of that. Aw, uh, don't kink shame her. I know it's not your thing. It's a lot of birds. You're right, you're right. Not to yuck anybody's yum. <laughs> birds and hot tubs are your thing. <laughs> yeah, if you're into bird-themed hot tub orgies, have at them. Oh, so many cloaca. <laughs> oh, no. 
the other panel that I liked a lot is a shot from the initial fight scene with Mr. Crystal. It's on page 22, and it's Cyborg plugging his arm laser attachment into his eyeball like it's a surge protector. It's just a cool kind of stylized panel, and it works in a way that a lot of other ones don't for me in this issue. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like that one too. Whenever I see stuff like that, though, I'm reminded of, like, here's the super high-tech character that is invented by people that I don't think understand how technology works very well. Uh, you say that, but uh, Marf Wolfman was using a computerized memo pad back in 88, so uh, I think you gotta cut him some slack on that. Yeah, he wasn't trying to plug it into his own eyeball, though. You don't know that. That's true. Any other panels? I like... On page 17, Art and Evelyn freaking the heck out. That is, yes, the most extreme version of the hair metal band. Not just in this issue, but one of the most extreme examples that I have ever seen. Mm -hmm. Well, Corey, it's time for our most popular new segment. The Battle of the Band Names. Last week, saw Get the Squid Drunk seeing a serious challenge from brash newcomers, the basically decent, civic-minded folk. Get the Squid Drunk did eventually emerge triumphant. It was touch and go there for a minute, because, uh, as you know, landlocked counties tend to vote late. But Get the Squid Drunk did still end up pulling out ahead. So this week, we will be once again pitting a band name from this issue against the Ska-infused sea shanties of Get the Squid Drunk. Uh, what names were you able to find in this? So my first choice was from the title, uh, Crystal Chaos, but uh, nope, that is a rock band from Florida that's been around since the 80s. Excellent. Uh, so can't use them. Uh, my second choice was I thought, you know what sounds super metal is Azeroth. Uh, nope, that is a Polish death metal band. <laughs> I thought they would be just a Nazareth cover band. Oh, that is precious. I wish I wish that were the case. <laughs> so I went with the uh, lovable kind of rockabilly revival, maybe a little more psychobilly like Reverend Horton Heat style group. I think they're from Jersey somewhere called the Wildebeests. Ooh, the Wildebeests is pretty good. That is not an actual band name. Uh, God damn it. <laughs> Okay, so is Wildebeest off the table? Yeah, they are uh, a garage rock super group. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> All right. It's weird uh, to think of there being a garage rock super group. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's just the internet. So the ones that I found were Tattered Emotions. I think that sounds like that could be a band. Sure. Like maybe a kind of synth heavy new wave, like soft cell sounding band. I would think this band is new wave, but more in the in the way like when you say tattered emotions, it makes me think of Heart of Glass. So I think that they sound like Blondie. Okay, I can see that. Yeah, tattered emotions. I I think is a decent band name. I think I slightly prefer though, Hamana Hamana Hamana. <laughs> and I see that as a power rock trio that consists of Kurt Hamana. Alan Hamana and Steve Hamana. Wow. And together they are Hamana Hamana Hamana. 
You think that's Triple H's favorite band? No, that's canonically Motorhead. Yeah, true. But a good guess. Same initials. <laughs> that's all I'm playing right, at. No, I got it. So, uh, what are you thinking? Tattered Emotions or Hamana Hamana Hamana? Or the three actual bands that I found. Um, <laughs> let's go with uh, Tattered Emotions, if you're cool with that. Absolutely. So, Tattered Emotions and their early new wave stylings. I like it. Okay. I hate to say it, I don't know if they're going to be able to give Get the Squid Drunk a run for their money, but I think they might have the best chance. Better than the Wildebeests? <laughs> I think it is funny that your three choices all ended up being actual bands. Yeah, it, which makes me nervous because I just recently started double-checking if my choices were actual bands. So I mean, I think if nothing else, it proves that you've got good instincts of what words would make good band names. I was disappointed to learn that our fake band that we made that one song for was actually the name of a band. There's a band called Fleshhammer from Maryland? Well, without the Maryland part, just the oh. Fleshhammer part. Oh, yeah, that's why we added the from Maryland part at the end, despite not being from Maryland. Well, Corey, I have but one final question I've got to ask you. Wapoot, in the now relatively arbitrarily determined date of November of 1988, what is Aqualad probably up to, Corey? Wapoot. Hmm, so... One of Aqualad's major takeaways is don't listen to a drunken pelican. <laughs> Good advice for us all. Yeah, Beaky was well into his cups one night. Uh, they were taking a little vacation, and drunken Beaky was reading the paper and was like, Aqualad, oh my gosh, you got to go to this taping of the Geraldo Rivera show. They're going to they're gonna have an episode on teen fishmongers. They are? Aqualad's like, what? That sounds pretty interesting. Wow, I could probably learn a lot. And like, I'm a, I'm a teen and I like fish. Okay, sure, let's let's go do that. And so the next day, they headed down to the studio to uh, got their tickets and everything and uh, attend the the taping of Geraldo Rivera's talk show. And it turned out it wasn't teen fishmongers; it was teen hate mongers. Oh, yeah. And so this is the one where talk television, being what it is, I guess they were having a, I guess you could say, set up for a debate between Roy Innes, who was the uh, at that time the director of the Congress for Racial Equality, and um, a 20-year-old John Metzger. Ugh. Yeah, who, you know, notorious uh, neo-Nazi. And things escalated quickly. A uh, fight broke out. Aqualad was able to jump into the fray and punch a bunch of neo-Nazis in the face. Which, oh, that's which, good. Which was good. Even at one point, he and uh, Mr. Rivera had their, you know, back-to-back bunch of Nazis together. Mr. Rivera, it turned out, used to be an amateur boxer. He got his nose busted up, broken, in fact. But uh, he had some more shows to tape that day and uh, opted not to go to the hospital. So Aqualad uh, patched up his nose so he could keep on taping. Mm. Man, Geraldo Rivera is such a piece of shit. Why would you do a show like that? I don't know. Did he do other bad stuff? Uh, and is currently doing bad stuff, too. Oh, yeah, I'm not super familiar with him. Mm. He's also, for a period of time, was Kurt Vonnegut's son-in-law. Wow, that's A strange. fact which Kurt Vonnegut was not thrilled about. Oh, man. Oh, shit. Maybe Aqualad should have punched him, too. <laughs> Whenever Geraldo Rivera's name comes up, one of the first things that leaps to mind after, ah, what a piece of shit, is uh, the Beastie Boys. You're mixed up like Rasta- 
Well, that is one thing that Aqualad was up to in November of 1988, but it certainly wasn't the only thing. By the end of the month, the main thing that Aqualad was up to was doing some extra chores around Atlantis and trying to raise a little bit of extra cash. See, if there's two things we know about Aqualad, it's that he tries his hardest to be a good friend and that he can sometimes be a little bit naive about the ways of the surface world. And both of those character traits were in full effect in November of 1988. See, Aqualad had remembered, as he did every year, that it was Duella Dent's birthday that month. You remember Duella Dent? She was the character known as Joker's daughter in the uh, late 70s. The crime fighter who, strangely was Harvey Dent's daughter, but had adopted the crime-fighting nickname The Joker's Daughter, also known as The Harlequin, and also, strangely, appeared to be a middle-aged Nancy Reagan look-alike who was also a teen titan for a brief period of time. Most of the titans had really drifted apart and hadn't kept in touch with some of the ancillary titans from later on in the titans' original run, but not Aqualad. He had kept in close touch with Duella and knew that she had been a little bit down lately and wanted to get her a special birthday present. Now, he had always known that Duella had a little bit of a crush on Dick Grayson, a.k.a. Nightwing, and so he was like, you know what, I'm going to get a nice picture of them together. But he looked and he couldn't find any pictures of them together. There, There just weren't any photographs of them from that era. So he thought he might have one commissioned. But he didn't really have time. So he's like, well, maybe if I just find a picture of two people who look like them, it'll be symbolic. Marf Wolfman taught me about this thing called symbolism, and I'm anxious (laughs) to give it a whirl. So when he saw that a painting was going on sale called The Acrobat and the Harlequin, he's like, oh, that's perfect. It'll remind her of their times together. That'll be great. So he went and he... uh said the word paradise a couple of times to get himself in the mood for some symbolism. Then he goes and there's some pretty heavy bidding on it. He's never really been to an art auction before, but he has fun like raising the paddle and the bidding goes up to 38. He's like, oh, $38 is kind of my upper limit of what I was going to spend, but I can do it. And he ended up winning the painting and then was very surprised to learn that it was $38 million because that painting was by Pablo Picasso. So, I mean, he's got a lot of extra chores around Atlantis to do, but fortunately, Aquaman has a lot of treasure lying around and no real conception of Earth money. So it's not going to put too much of a bite on him. But still, it's a nice thought. And uh, I think Duella Dent's going to be pretty stoked about her birthday present that year. Wow, I should say so. And that's what Aqualad was up to in November of 1988. Wow. Punching Nazis and buying Picassos. Yep. That's a heck of a month. Well, Corey, thank you so much for coming and discussing this topic that kind of broke my brain a little bit. You're welcome. I had a fun time talking about it with you. I think it's good to get these things off of my chest so that they don't just fester and Mm. drive me mad with crystal powers. Because mm-hmm. I think that's maybe how that works. We will be back next week to cover the inaugural issue of J.M. DeMatteis's run on the Defenders. I'm really looking forward to that. I think that should be a lot of fun. And we'll be back in two weeks to uh, see what this Wilderbeast business is all about. Do you think they have the 
garage rock supergroup in the issue? I hope so. <laughs> Who would you put in your garage rock supergroup? Gosh, like I know that's a genre, but I actually can't really think of any bands that I know songs from that would be described that way. Yeah, I know some bands, but uh, I don't know many of the individual performers in the bands. Mm -hmm. Uh, With the exception being Question Mark from Question Mark and the Mysterians and Mel Shaker, who played bass in Question Mark and the Mysterians. And as you know, of course, went on to be in Grand Funk Railroad. Mm -hmm. So uh, mostly, I think my Garage Rock supergroup would be Mel Shaker of Grand Funk Railroad. Solid choice. Thank you. If you have any more questions about Grand Funk Railroad and would like to get into touch with us, we could be reached at ttwasteland at gmail.com or via our post office box at Tighten Up the Defense, P.O. Box 20311, Portland, Oregon, 97294. If you'd like to get into touch with us on socials media, you could probably do that. All you have to do is go into your webbed browser and type in http slash slash www colon. Wait, is there a colon in there? It's a dot after the last W. Ah, www.google.com. Uh huh. Then do a search for Tighten Up the Defense. And, you know, we're on the uh, Facebook and Twitter and uh, some some other evil media sites. So, uh, yeah, why not seek us out there? And if you can't find us there, you know what? There's one more place you can look, and that's deep inside your heart, where we'll be trying to get into touch with Mel Shaker of Grand Funk Railroad and see if he would like to be the celebrity spokesperson for our show. That would be so cool. If you would like to support the show monetarily, a great way to do that is to check us out on patreon.com slash ttwasteland. If you decide to become a patron there, you get access to a bunch of bonus material that is exclusive for our donors. There is the monthly podcast, What the Duck, a podcast most foul but with a W because he's a duck, that's the full name of the show. And there's also a bunch of little video reviews that I do of classic comic books. And there's a whole bunch of other stuff on there, too. There's just some uh, bonus audio podcasts and other stuff. Maybe some pictures? I don't know if there's any pictures. But there's a lot of stuff on there. And uh, if you donate, you get exclusive access to it. So that's one reason you might want to consider kicking us down some money. Another reason, and in my opinion, a perhaps more important reason, is... That by supporting the show, you let us know that you care about the show and would like us to be able to continue doing it. Uh, It's the donations that we receive that make the show possible and make me buying groceries possible. So thank you so much for doing that. If you would like to support the show in a non-monetary way, well, why, why don't you tell a friend about it? Or an enemy? Or someone about whom you are relatively ambivalent? Maybe not a stranger, because I think they would find that confusing. But hey, you know what? From nonsense comes unity. That's not a thing, and it doesn't relate to what I just said. I have been too informed by this recent issue. What's another way people can spread the word about the show, Corey? You could make a picket sign. Oh, that's a good idea. Mm -hmm. Yeah, just protest on our behalf. Not enough podcasts. (laughs) 
I think we would all agree that that is the number one crisis facing our nation right now. Not enough podcasts. Yep. So, yeah, make a picket sign and uh, just (laughs) carry it up and down the street saying, tighten up the defense forever. Not tighten up the defense. No, thank you. Five stars. Five stars. (laughs) Yeah, also leave that as as a review wherever your podcasts are sold. Or taken, because it's it's a free podcast. So, you know. Enjoy. Yeah, enjoy, enjoy. So thanks so much for listening. And until next week, um, homina, homina, homina. $400. Bye. Bye. And they knew it. No. I don't get credit for that? No, you do not. Why not? You don't okay. get credit for, for not being a jerk. No. Well, I'd like some. Well, wouldn't we all? <laughs> hey!